0: Spitcast. The future of collaborative video production. Spitcast. Truths, information conversation. Collaboration. Spitcast. Hi, I'm Michael London, and welcome to Spidcast, the future of collaborative video production, brought to you by Spidvid.com. On this episode, we're visiting with James Chrysanthus, cinematographer and director and also indie filmmaker Mesh Flanders. Twice nominated for Emmy Awards for Cinematography, you've seen James's work on the miniseries The Reagans, the film Chicago, and Breakthrough Videos for N.W.A., Dr. Dre, and also Weird Al Smells Like Nirvana. Mesh Flanders' credits include being the co-creator of the massively successful web series Lonely Girl 15, which got him widespread media coverage, From Time and Newsweek magazines to the Times of London and the New York Times to the NBC Nightly News, ABC's Nightline, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and The Daily Show. A wonderful Spidcast on tap today. Settle in. Here we go. First up is James Chrysanthus, ACS. James, welcome to Spidcast. Hey, hi, Michael. So tell us a bit about yourself so people can get to know you about uh, how you came to be an award-nominated cinematographer.
1: Well, I was, uh, uh, grew up in kind of modest circumstances in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, the L train was my earliest memory. Uh, not a place uh, close to Hollywood, uh, and, but I was always interested in photography, and my father and my mother encouraged me in that. And so I've been taking photographs since age 10. And then um, I started making films in college. And But very slowly, you know, moved toward movies. I studied fine arts, uh, black and white photography and sculpture and drawing. And so I had a very, very strong fine arts education. And then at, at that point, I started making little films, and one thing led to another. But after, it took me like a 10-year, <laughs> you know, odyssey to finally uh, go to Hollywood.
0: Wow. Well, take us, Reader's Digest style now, through those 10 years.
1: I did sculpture and drawing, a very strong fine arts training. I actually did bronze casting. Um, did a lot of life drawing, and did I started doing multimedia installations, and I, show, I was shooting film and video uh, with those, and doing projection pieces, uh, stuff with dance and um, and uh, and performance. So I was sort of on the periphery of movies. But then I started making. Uh, I made a couple of student films uh, in sixteen millimeter, and they got and they, they started to get notice. Uh, but even then, I, you know, to make a living, to work in the in, the, in Hollywood didn't seem like a, possible to me. So uh, I made a documentary about a Greek mountain village, the life of a Greek mountain village, uh, from the end of winter to the summer wheat harvest. And that film got on PBS. And uh, I was in a festival in Houston, I think, and the, the director, Bill Richard, who did Winter Kills, was there and he said uh so kid you you directed the film you shot the film you edited the film you mixed the sound you cut the negative yourself you promoted it and got it on PBS uh and you're teaching college in Michigan he said kid they'll uh, uh they pay to do that work out in Hollywood so i you know at age 30 i packed up and uh went to the american film institute and you know chucked my job and <laughs> and, and, and starved for a bit and then uh, started shooting uh, out, out here in, in Los Angeles.
0: And what was that film? Can we see that somewhere?
1: The film, gee, you know, it's, it's, it's on YouTube. <laughs> I put it on YouTube. That, that film was uh, Remembrance of a Journey to the Village, uh, 1980.
0: Now, as I understand it, it was your time at AFI when you really blossomed.
1: What happened in, uh, at the American Film Institute, that was the first time I really started collaborating and working with crews, not working in a solitary fashion. And, uh, I had the good fortune to be the intern to Vilmos Zygmunt on The Witches of Eastwick. And at the end of the show, uh, after working on it for 100 days, uh, Vilmos had me shoot some, uh, um, um uh, pickup shots and some inserts and some special effects inserts for the movie. So I went, you know, went from intern to, you know, kind of second unit DP <laughs> in one fell swoop. And then I started doing music videos. And I shot the first music videos of Bobby McFerrin, uh, Hammer, N.W.A., Doctor Dre. Uh, I did I did about eighty music videos in that period, and had a Grammy nomination with uh, Weird Al Yankovic and Smells Like Nirvana. So it was, that was a great training ground doing the music videos, but especially doing the West Coast to rap and hip hop artists. Uh, and, you know, being right at the beginning of that was uh, was very very nice. And then I moved into narrative features and movies and television from there.
0: And these music videos must have been really great training for you.
1: Yeah, well, we—Rupert Wainwright, uh, the director, and I—we had a great collaboration, and we always tried to do narrative. Uh, <laughs> we always tried to design narrative music videos, not just performance-related videos. I think the uh, the business changed a bit, and you know, the the record companies uh, who were very powerful at the time—they they didn't really want narrative videos. They just wanted simple performance-related you know, uh, showpieces for their music artists. But we were always trying to do a narrative, and we did an amazing hammer video called Turn This Mother Out, which was terrific. And also did a video straight out of Compton, which uh, Rupert and I co-directed, um, which was about uh, the gangbangers and the kids in South Central L.A. being profiled and being arrested for no reason. So it, it, it wouldn't premiere on MTV. It premiered on Nightline because <laughs> it was so controversial. And then a few months after that, um, you know, we had the L.A. riots and Rodney King and so forth. So it was actually a very timely piece. And uh, I enjoyed working at N.W.A. They were great.
0: Now you bring up an interesting term, and I want the young filmmakers to really understand this. You said you wanted to make the music videos with a narrative. I'm guessing that came from your documentary background.
1: Where's my documentary background, shooting real people, real things, not not the phony reality TV we have today which is actually scripted. You know, most people should realize most reality television is scripted and manipulated. It's not real at all, far from it. So, my documentary background shooting real people, observing reality, observing someone's life and then trying to visually portray it was real useful when I did Straight out of Compton. We were trying to show what happens on the streets of LA and Compton if you're a black teenager. Uh, so that was I think bringing that that sense of reality from my documentary background was very useful in narrative cinema and and again, again a great narrative film uh, makes you think it completely suspends your dis- disbelief makes you think it's real completely real it's happening in front of you, you're completely subjective and with the characters and a great documentary also has terrific narrative thread and narrative structure and strength so you're you know you are really invested in the characters that you're seeing, and, but in this case it's their lives.
0: So, advice to those just getting into this business in regards to telling the story is what?
1: Any filmmaker, you should really learn the basics of narrative storytelling. This is whether you're doing documentaries or doing dramatic work. Um, know your Billy Shakespeare, right? Um, I remember when I was at school, Sam Shepard, the actor and playwright and you know, great writer, came to our school, and the kids were all asking him, uh, you know, Sam, what's, uh, what, what writers have influenced you? And of course, they were all expecting 20th century writers to be listed, and he looked at us all, and he said, Sophocles. So knowing about drama and dramatic structure is probably one of the most important things a filmmaker can, can uh, know. And also, just having a great liberal arts education and knowing about the world uh, I mean, I don't really don't, e- everything you can learn about, technically about filmmaking, you can learn in two or three years. But that's not what's important. What's important is, the, do you have a story to tell? Do you know how to tell that story? Um, when I, if the film students ask me, how do you decide how you shoot something? And I said, it's very simple. The camera is a pointing device. The camera is a pointing device. You point it at what's important. And a lot of young filmmakers don't do that. They point the camera every which way. (laughs) You know, you got to know what the story is about, whether it's a music video, a documentary, or a narrative piece. And in terms of technology, I mean, I'm doing, you know, as as I said uh, before we got on the interview, you know, I'm going off to Russia and Mongolia here, and in my living room is, uh, you know, some DSLRs, (laughs) you know, and a sound package. And a backpack, so I'm going to do a whole documentary narrative feature out of that backpack with my laptop and hard drives and so forth. Uh, I just recently shot something on the iPhone, and you know I'll use the iPhone as a backup camera. So the technology is fungible. It keeps moving and changing. Probably what doesn't change is your sense, again, is what I talked about narrative and storytelling structure. And the other thing that really is, is, is fundamental is do you know aesthetics and composition? Do you, have you developed your aesthetic sense? That's, that's very, very important. Uh, a cinematographer should know, or a director, should know the history of art of all people of all times. Now, that's sort of an impossible task, but you should be familiar and conversant in art from all, all through the ages, not just films and photography of this past century, but from all time and all culture. If you have that kind of knowledge, you're going to enrich the kind of movies you make.
0: Now, uh, James, you touched a moment ago on emerging technologies and such. Give us your thoughts on collaborative venues like Spidvid.
1: Well, I, I don't know. I think it's it's sort of uh, anything you need to know is out there, and I think it's it's what's what's valuable is if you know if someone's listening now, they want to see MC Hammer's turn this mother out. They can go on YouTube and see four or five versions of it. You know, various levels of quality. I mean, I think the social media and just the Internet in general is useful as an educational tool and as a a way of opening our eyes and seeing, you know, how other cultures work. The project I'm doing in Asia involves uh, film students in Russia and Mongolia, and they're making little two-minute films. uh, And I'm asking them to limit their films to very, very short lengths, and we're we're constructing a mosaic of images with the work they create. And I'm in turn of doing training my cameras on them, and doing a documentary about the making of these films and their view of the world, uh, because the world's in a tough place right now. So that's what uh, my film is about. So the social media, I think, is very, very important. It's, it's, I think, all of this is still in flux, and it's, you know, it's still there's a lot of newness to it, and uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it all settles out.
0: And if you would, please tell us about your latest finished film.
1: Well, uh, you, you may speaking of no subtitles necessary, Laszlo and Vilmos, a feature documentary that I did. It was kind of a 20-year dream, dream come true. I made it about Vilmos Zygmunt and Laszlo Kovacs, the great Hungarian cinematographers, who, as film students, filmed the Hungarian revolution and the subsequent crushing of the revolt by the Russians and with overwhelming force in their tanks. And then they decided to smuggle that film out of Hungary to the West. Uh, No YouTube in those days, so they had to physically take the film out. And they were nearly killed, and they left uh, all their friends and country behind, and uh, they had to decide what they were going to do. And they said, well, we're without country, we're broke, what should we do? We're cinematographers, we should go to Hollywood. And that's what they did, and they changed world cinema with films like Easy Rider, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Deer Hunter, Paper Moon, Deliverance. Um, they shot 140 American movies and really changed the landscape. They were, you know, in the forefront of the American new wave. So, but what was also interesting was they uh, had an amazing loyalty and friendship. Then they helped each other through their immigrant experience and helped, them, helped each other climb out of the underbelly of Hollywood where they were working. Since the film is uh, premiered at Cannes, and went on to about 35 film festivals worldwide, and still showing uh, today. And uh, it won an Emmy nomination for its run on PBS and the television version. And uh, Vilmos Zsigmond and I, together and sometimes by my, I'm by myself, have given m- master cinematography classes all over the world: uh, Argentina, Chicago, Greece, Poland, Romania, Moscow. Vladivostok, Russia, Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and the list goes on.
0: And where can we see that film now?
1: Uh, uh You can Google No Subtitles Necessary, and uh, it'll come up first, the, we- the film website, and it's also on Facebook at No Subtitles Necessary, Laszlo and Vilmosh.
0: Fantastic, and I know that people listening will want to learn more about James Chrysanthus. And where do we do that?
1: Uh, chrysanthus.com. Um, is my website, and you can links to all these other things. Uh, that's c h r e s s a n t h i s
0: dot com. Thank you so much, James. Safe travels. Spidcast. Next up is independent filmmaker Mesh Flanders. Mesh, welcome to Spidcast.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's start out with a quick overview of Mesh Flanders.
2: I was raised. A small community in Northern California, and I was isolated from media almost entirely. I didn't have television, obviously didn't have the internet in those days, and it made me very curious about the world outside of the community where I grew up. First films and television shows that I saw sort of seemed like messages from another planet because I didn't know about high school or you know elementary school or anything. I was I was uh, pretty isolated, and that's how I became fascinated with film. The first films that I saw that made a big impression on me were uh, Goodfellas, uh, La Strada, um, the Indiana Jones films, so kind of a wide variety of stuff when I was like 13, 14. At first, I really wanted to be in them. I wanted to be an actor, and I actually started writing screenplays as a way of creating roles for myself in high school, you know, things that roles that I wanted to play. When I was 20, I moved to Los Angeles, uh, I went to Occidental College, and... I quickly lost interest in acting and started writing screenplays and directing short films. After college, I worked as an assistant to several filmmakers. Uh, My first sort of break came uh, when I was 25, and I was hired to write a horse script for a company called Blue Omega. I was 25, and all of a sudden, I was a professional screenwriter, and I thought, this isn't that hard. Uh, What's everyone complaining about? But then, of course, reality set in, the movie didn't get made, and pretty quickly, I was... Um, not getting writing work. It was early 2006, and I was sort of struggling, didn't really know what I was going to do next. And that's when I met Miles Beckett, who had this idea of uh, creating a fictional blogger on YouTube, and sort of having them despair. And I also met Greg Goodfried and his wife Amanda Goodfried around this time, and together we created Lonely Girl 15. I actually didn't know very much about YouTube at the time. Uh, Miles was very passionate about online video, and had been experimenting with uh, web video before then. Greg was also very passionate about the space. What really excited me about the project was the chance to create this character that, was, that had to be totally real, that had to be completely believable. Um, I thought that was a really interesting challenge. And uh, to try to kind of uh, create a voice that was authentic enough that people would, would really think this was a real person.
0: Excellent. Now, take us back in time a bit, and tell us about that very first thing you wrote that did go into production.
2: The first thing that I was able to produce was Not Until College, and it was called In the Time of My Undoing, and I think you can actually find it online. If not, I'll put it up on my blog, um, so you know people listening to this can look at it. It was uh, It was a film I made at Occidental College, and it was extremely ambitious. It was around the time that American Beauty came out, and I was really inspired by that, and and so you'll see a lot of uh, similarities to to American Beauty. I was a big fan of that, um, and uh, you know it was just a short film with uh, with actors that I cast from. I think I was a freshman, you know, and I I cast uh, actors in my class and and just went and, and shot it, and, and I was pretty pleased with it. You know, it was it was on video. It was it was pretty you know early days of video. It's not even like high def. I don't think. But it was a fun project and that was the first that was the first film I ever made.
0: Now if you would mesh take us back to that time of you being the co-creator of the Smash web series Lonely Girl 15?
2: Well, at the beginning it was like being on a roller coaster. I was surprised by how quickly the show garnered an audience and a, a real passionate following among its fans. After meeting miles and Greg and, 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 and writing I think you know just a few episodes, we very quickly set out to cast it and and found uh, Jessica and Yusuf and, and, and shot these episodes and put them up. It was uh, June 16, 2006, I think was the first episode. You know, what was the most fun for me in those early days was being part of this really tight-knit creative family. I mean, we did everything together. We were all working so hard on the shows. Uh, there was so much to do. We basically were working around the clock from dawn until late into the night every day. And I think every young filmmaker should have that experience at least once in their life of going all in on something and then seeing it work, seeing it really catch on. After about three months of the show growing in popularity, um, fans writing back and forth to Lonely Girl every day, us posting videos probably three or four days a week there in the early stages, so really a very fast-paced production schedule. After about three months, we had a very difficult choice to make. So there was a lot of buzz in the press um, in those first three months of the show. And we were faced with a very difficult decision to make, which was we could have stayed sort of behind the curtain. But the pressure was mounting to come out and say that we were doing this and that it was not a real teenage girl. And that was a surreal experience. I thought everyone would hate us. And some people did. But for the most part, after we came out, which was almost exactly three months after the show had premiered, it was uh, September 14th, 2006, I believe, for the most part, people were just excited that we pulled it off and wanted to know what the experience was like.
0: So all that buzz and frenzy, what effect did it have on your career going forward?
2: In terms of my career, um, to date, Lonely Girl is by far the project that I've had the most success with. And so it was, it was very difficult to leave you know we um we worked together on the show uh, while i was there for for almost 2 years and in that time we produced uh i believe something like 250 episodes together um, and so you know it was like a family and it was and it was just a ton of work really satisfying work i think you know the most most satisfying thing for my career was that it, it was instant um instant response to your work you know you're 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 writing something you're directing something you're editing it all within about a week and then it goes up and the next thing you know people are responding to it they're talking about it and it's part of this this longer sort of bigger narrative and that was incredibly satisfying so um, you know, and, and then also just having all that press, I mean, I was, I was, able, um, I was able to leave and, and go do what I had initially really wanted to do, which was to make films. And by the end of 2007, beginning of 2008, I was ready to do that. I was, I was really burned out, and I wanted to try a different, uh, different medium. So I left, and I took a long break from web video, and I threw myself into film. Um, I made a short film, and I traveled the world with it to, to many film festivals, and I tried for two and a half years to put together my first feature, but it was right after the economic collapse, and in hindsight, I was probably asking for too large of a budget, um, and about a year ago, I finally let go of that project. It was one of the hardest things that I've ever done, but it needed to be done, and it, it really led to where I'm at today.
0: Well, and then that, of course, begs the question, where are you today? What is going on?
2: Well, I forced myself to take a really long, hard look. When I put this film down you know, and decided I wasn't going to try to make it, you know, I'd been on it for, for almost well, two and a half years at that point. I took a really long, hard look at, at where film is today and why it's so difficult to get specific kinds of work produced. Um, projects that don't rely on already existing fan bases like sequels or adaptations, you know, these are the kinds of films that I love, and it's very hard for these films to get made. It's hard for them to find audiences. Um, and I sort of came to the conclusion that, that in the 20th century, film was arguably the most powerful medium in the world. And it just isn't anymore. And that's very hard for filmmakers to accept. In the 90s, when a lot of us came of age, a lot of my generation came of age, film was what you talked about. It was the de facto water cooler conversation. You know, did you see this over the weekend? Did you see that? What did you think of it? Um, And that isn't the case anymore, and film is having a hard time adjusting from it. So the more that I talked with my colleagues and friends, the more I realized that I really needed to throw myself back into social media. And the more that I talked with my friends, I realized that that this was where I needed to be, that the web video world was where the innovation was taking place, that it was where new models were being experimented with. Um, I think that social media gives you the power to find people with similar passions and interests and speak directly to them. You know, you don't you don't have to have these big marketing dollars. Going back to Lonely Girl, uh, we never had a billboard on Santa Monica Boulevard, uh, but we managed to get our work out to millions of people. So about a year ago, I started consulting on web series. Um, at first, it was honestly, you know, I was more of a student than a teacher because I was so behind. I had so much to learn. I'd been focusing exclusively on film for almost two years. Um, I owe a lot to friends like uh, Kathleen Grace and Wilson Cleveland, who are colleagues, and real influencers in the space, and and it really helped me to see what's possible and helped helped me find my passion for that space again, you know, the the web video space. And so in the last year, I've worked on a variety of web video projects for clients everywhere from American Express and AMC um, to About.com. I've worked for agencies like Digitas and Electric Artists, and I'm directing my first feature next year. But the, the thing that's really exciting about my first feature is that it's, it's, it's actually grown out of social media, not the other way around. I think that the mistake I made with the feature that I was trying to put together um, about a year, year and a half ago was that, you know, I created my dream project and then looked around and said, okay, how is this? i social. And this time I'm taking the opposite approach. I'm starting with social media and sort of building it up uh, from that. Um, in addition to that, I recently started a blog that covers uh, filmmakers who are using social media in, like, really interesting ways. Um, this is called socialfilm.com, and there's, like, an interview every week with a new filmmaker and new content every day.
0: Namesh, a moment ago you mentioned that you never had a billboard on Sunset Boulevard. How does someone producing content for the web get noticed?
2: Well, first and foremost, content creators you know, have to be aware that as more and more content moves online, they're competing for eyeballs with professionally produced shows. Um, and so you you have less money, you have less resources, but audiences are not going to be distinguishing between your work and 30 Rock because they're going to be watching it in the same box. What we do have, what levels of playing field is our social networks. And I think that content creators like Felicia Day, Freddie Wong, um, I justine, I think they've done a brilliant job of this on YouTube, of, of creating a large, engaged social following. And then, of course, on the independent film side, you've got people like Ryan Co Kevin Smith, Joe Swamberg, independent names that, that you know certainly aren't as well known as, as Felicia and, and Freddie, but they have a dedicated social following, a large social network, and they leverage that to give themselves freedom to produce what they want because they know that they don't need to go through Universal or Paramount um, to find their audience, that their audience is right there online, literally at their fingertips. And I think that this is potentially incredibly liberating for filmmakers. It's not, there isn't one model, there isn't a, a one-size-fits-all uh, model there right now. It's still this, this highly experimental space. And of all six of those people that I just mentioned, they're all actually doing very different things with it. Um, but I think they've, they, what they've done has been very effective, so I think they're good examples. Uh, but there is there's a lot of experiment, ex, a lot of experimenting going on, and, and new models sort of being rolled out every day.
0: Wonderful advice. Young and new filmmakers have a lot that they can learn from you. Where do we find out more about Mesh Flenders?
2: You can uh, go to my website, social-film.com.
0: That's it for this show. Thanks for listening to Spidcast. We appreciate your time and attention. You can now join the conversation at spitvid.com or on our Spidvid blog and you can join our collaborative filmmaking community at spitvid.com. Tune in next month for another entertaining and informative episode of
1: Spidcast
0: Spidcast.